Well, last week we began a series on parables. And if you don't know, parables are stories told by Jesus that are recorded in the four Gospels in the New Testament. They're tools that Jesus used to teach people about God and about the kingdom of God. They're very important, and they're very interesting parts of Scripture. And as a result, we are going to spend the next several months teaching on them here on Sunday morning. Now, as we kick off the second week, as Matt said, of our new series on parables called True Story, I have a story that I want to tell. In November 2006, uh, I left my first pastoral position at a church in Grand Rapids, Michigan, where we had served for five years. Now, ministry can be draining on all sorts of levels, and Julie and I felt like we wanted to take some time away and reflect and just kind of reassess how things had gone. Uh, I did some schooling. I looked into some other vocational options. Was ministry going to be the thing I was going to go into next? It wasn't certain. After about a year of praying and looking into some other possibilities, we sensed God saying, okay, Jeremy, it's time to venture back into where your next ministry and church location will be. And we did that in January 2008. And right away, we heard of another church in Grand Rapids that Jude and I really liked, that had a position that we really liked, open. And so we applied. And quickly we moved through the interview process. It fit, it fit with what I had done, my experience. Actually, this new church was a better fit than the older church had been in some just style and culture ways. And we were down to our final two people. I made the top two people in this interview. And I went in for my final interview, and it, was, it went very well. In fact, they inferred to me that, you know, we like this fit. We think this is going to work. Don't be surprised if you hear us in the next couple of days with an offer. They didn't say anything official, but that was the inference. So we go home. We're excited. However, it was surprising when all of a sudden there was silence. For a week, we didn't hear a thing. We were talking about it. We went back to the church the following Sunday, and uh, these people who had just two weeks earlier been so open and warm and welcoming to us were all of a sudden standoffish when we saw them. And right away I knew something's up. Well, a day or two later I get an email saying, thanks for your interest in the position, but we've chosen another candidate. We're going in a different direction. Come to find out, and I found this out later, there was a former pastor at a megachurch in Grand Rapids who had been sailing around the world on a sailboat and had heard about the position in one of their port stops, had an interest in it, and had notified the church through a friend that they wanted uh, to candidate for the position as well. So in Bora Bora, via satellite phone, this individual interviews, and the church loved him and they offered him a position. When I found out about this, I kind of laughed. Because here I was, one of the final two candidates, and last minute, I lost the position to a guy on a boat 6,000 miles away in the South Pacific. Little did I know that this would foreshadow what would take place over the next 12 to 15 months. I began pursuing ministry positions in dozens of churches. I was almost always in the final round or the second-to-last round of candidates they were considering. Five times I made the final two. Two times I was the last candidate there. In one instance, I was there. They were ready to offer me the position, and the lead pastor all of a sudden stepped down. And so they had to put the hiring on pause. And it took two, three months, and they hired the new, the new position. And when the new pastor came in, we're heading in a different direction, and they eliminated the job I was going to be hired for. In another instance, I was the last candidate. 
I was on the phone. I can still see myself having the conversation with the pastor saying, yes, Jeremy, you are the candidate. You're the last one. You're the one who's made it through the process. However, upon further prayer and reflection, we just don't think you're a good fit for our church. So we're going to continue with the position unfilled for the time. And that's hard. That's devastating. Here I was, I had been losing out to everyone, and I literally lost to no one. I could not, I could not get a job. Eventually, Rooftop comes up, and I apply at Rooftop. And not without irony, I didn't even make the final cut at Rooftop Church when they were looking to hire. I missed it by one vote. And so I get this email, and it's a pretty standard email. Thank you for your interest. We're moving in a different direction with uh, three other candidates. However, should something happen to one of those candidates, please uh, send us a list of references and a copy of a uh, video of you teaching, and we would love to consider you should an opening appear for some unexpected reason. It's a pretty standard response to when you're said, thanks, but no thanks, we'll see you. And so we were going to move on and not think much about it. And a couple days later, I was driving home from the job I was working, and I heard a voice that said, finish well. So I get home, and to Julie's annoyance, because she had three kids four years and under at that time, I said, hon, I need a couple hours, just sorry, I need you to keep with the kids, I got to get some stuff done and get this in the mail in response in order to finish well. And I sent this off, what had been requested, and I moved on. And Julie and I were praying, we weren't sure what was going to happen. Well, little did we know, unexpectedly, early February of 2009, I get a phone call. Jeremy, this is Rooftop. We had a candidate unexpectedly step out of the interview process. Are you able to come preach an interview a week from Sunday, 10 days from now? Well, the rest is history. And what did I learn from this process? Well, I learned a number of things, but I learned the importance of perseverance. What if at any point along the way I had stopped? I had given up. Matt later told me I was the only candidate to send my information in after the fact. The other six finalists who weren't chosen didn't choose to do it. And today's story is also about perseverance. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke 18. And as usual, you can also follow along on the screens behind me. Luke 18, verses 1 through 8. And he, talking about Jesus, told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while, he refused. But afterward, he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Now the parable we're talking about today, unlike last week's parable, which is lengthier, is only four verses long. It's four verses of parable surrounded by four verses of Jesus' comments about the parable. The parable is verses 2 through 5. Verse 1, verse 6, 7, and 8 are Jesus' comments setting up and then talking about the parable, that, the story that he just told. 
Now, who are the characters in our story today? Well, there's three of them. There's the widow. Now, in our present day, we might not think much of hearing about a widow in a story. They're people just like everybody else, right? A widow in our world is a, a woman whose husband has passed away, and their lives are often associated with a certain level of sadness, losing this beloved of theirs. But they're regular people just like us, and eventually widows need to mourn and then move on. But not in Jesus' day. When reading the Bible and understanding the culture, the stories, and the various teachings about widows, we must always understand what it meant to be a widow in biblical times. Widows, if you don't know, were on, where they were the lowest rung of society. Probably just above lepers, honestly. It was that bad. In biblical times, women, to begin with, were sub-citizens. They were second-class people, often viewed as property, sadly enough. A widow was worse, though. She was damaged goods, having been previously married. She was often older. And if she did not, and with no husband to look out for her, if she had not already had a son who could grow up and take care of her, having already been married, she was, for the most part, doomed. There was no social safety net. There was no social security. There was no welfare. There were no Section 8 housing available. It was a perilous and terrible place to be. So when Jesus says, and there was a widow in the city who had an adversary, who had somebody who was against her, we need to realize that this woman was in deep, deep trouble. She has a problem in her life, and she is powerless to deal with it. And she's, who knows, how, whoever this adversary was or what it was, but it, this was not good for her. So she does the only thing she can do. She goes to the judge, who's our second person in the story. She calls him that. Jesus calls him that straight up. He calls him the unrighteous judge. Both in verse 2 and in verse 6. And in the story, the judge himself calls himself unrighteous. I don't fear God nor respect man. However, the judge, though unrighteous, is in a position of power. Being a judge. He has influence in that society. And he has the ability to assist and deliver the widow from her peril, but chooses not to. And he has no interest in doing so. And finally, we're introduced to the third person in the story, God. Jesus mentions God the Father in verse 2 and verse 4. Now, in the story, God is the standard to which the unrighteous judge is being compared. Often in the parables, the judge, the landowner, the person of power, they actually represent God in the story when we draw our parallels. But not in this parable. The judge in this case and God are distinct. One, by the label unrighteous, but two, that God labels and re or Jesus references God separately from the judge himself. So what happens in the story? Well, the widow is in trouble and unable to get out of her crisis situation. The unrighteous judge refuses to help time and again. In fact, I'm sure after saying no, he probably laughed at her and scorned her in a society that already denigrates women. Here's this impoverished, desperate woman who has no help, and he, being an evil man, probably goes to the club at night with the guys, kicks back with a cocktail, and tells jokes. Ha <laughs> ha, you should see this desperate lady. Ha 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 I'm certain that's what was taking place. But she was unrelenting. She would not give up. I have a question this morning. Do you have anyone in your life that is like that? Anyone that is that 
tireless. I do. I have a child who's like that. Now, I promised this child I would not use their name, but from time to time, they have the nickname of number three, so you do the math. <laughs> anyway, this Zilky child, old number three, often, when they want something and are told no, they will not give up. They keep coming, like waves beating against the cliffs. They keep on coming. Now, sometimes it's to their detriment because we've stated what needs to be said and this is, it's just disobedience on their part and that needs to be confronted and addressed as a parent to the child. But other times, as a parent, I'm just, I'm lazy. I'm tired. I don't want to hear it. And they keep on coming. And when I was reading this, I thought, you know, I know what it feels like to be that judge. Because said child is, the adjective I use to describe them is indefatigable, which means persisting tirelessly. And I love that word, indefatigable. So I know a little bit about how the judge feels. And in this case, just like I do sometimes, the judge gives in to the widow, gives her what she wants. Now I give in partly because I'm tired and I want you to go away, but I do love the child and want the best for them. The judge doesn't care about the person but does want peace from her. Gives her what he wants, and she goes away. So that's your story. That's the parable. And what's the lesson we're supposed to draw from this? Well, at first glance, you would say, persistence in prayer to get what you want, right? I mean, look at verse 1 and what Jesus says to start off the parable. He says this, And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. We see the widow hound the judge to get what she wants and needs. And the judge finally gives in and states very clearly why he's giving in, just to get rid of her. And the passage points out, this is an unrighteous judge. God is righteous and loving and good. And so we derive from this that, yes, there is power and efficacy in our persevering in prayer. And this is an important truth in the life of the Christian. Jesus tells us elsewhere in the book of Matthew, Ask and it shall be given. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door shall be opened. James, the brother of Jesus, tells us in the epistle later in the New Testament, that you do not have because you do not ask. Prayer is important. And pers persevering in prayer is especially important. And how do we do that? Well, just for practical sake, I don't know if you've, you do this at all, but you write our prayers down. Get a prayer journal. Studies show that when we write things down, whatever it is, we are more likely to stick with them. I have a prayer journal. I write things down that I want to pray for. It reminds me to pray for them again. Secondly, when that prayer is answered, I can write the date I know the date I started and the date that God answered that prayer, which is an encouraging recording of God's engagement with me in my daily life, that he's hearing my prayers and he's answering them, that I can write the date answered next to it. It's a wonderful way to deepen and develop my prayer life and my trust in the Lord. So there. But is that really what this passage is saying? This is where we need to discuss an important aspect of parables, and that's that parables can have alternate or multiple meanings. Some parables that Jesus tells are very straightforward, and the meaning is clear and simple. Other parables, however, do not have a clear and simple meaning. They're a little mysterious. 
Sometimes Jesus chooses to lay it out plainly, what the parable says, and then even goes and you see a conversation with the disciples afterward telling them exactly what his parable meant. But other times, he gives no explanation at all. This is our Jesus. Unpredictable. Non-conforming. Going against the grain. Breaking societal rules. So when we read a parable, we might need to slow down and read it again to look more deeply into what is being told. Bible study tip here that we always want to practice, and that's figure out what the context is. Whenever you pick up God's Word, whenever you begin to read a passage in God's Word, you want to understand the context of the passage that you're reading. You want to look more deeply. You want to ask an extra question or two to understand that context, context to get a sense of what is being said. For instance, this parable seems pretty straightforward until you get to verse 8. Verse 8 is a little weird. The last phrase on verse 8 says this, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? It doesn't really fit. Well, maybe if people are praying to God and asking for things and holding to, maybe that's the faith he's talking about. So when he comes, as long as you're seeking God for things, maybe that's... But it just doesn't feel like that's a... That's a pretty bold statement. Will I find faith on earth? Oh, and faith is my persistence in asking God for the things that I need and want. Also, if you go back to verse 7, there's this reference to justice and the delay of justice. And this doesn't really fit in because what I'm asking for might not be justice. It just might be the thing that I sense I need or I want from God. How does justice fit in? Well, where is this story found in the book of Luke? It's found in Luke chapter 18. Did you know that the chapters and the verses in the Bibles were not added until the 14 and 1500s? At the end of the Middle Ages, after 1500 years with the scriptures, for the sake of making it easier to reference and to locate and to memorize and to re remember all that, they added chapters and they added verses. But prior to that, these weren't books or textbooks, how we might look at them now. They were letters written to groups of people, really long letters, some of them, but they were letters. And in order to understand this passage, not only do we need to look more deeply into verse 8 and verse 7, but we need to go back to the prior passage and understand what was God saying in the end of 17 before we get to Luke 18. And you'll be interested to find out what Jesus says. The end of Luke 17, he's talking about the end of the world. In Luke 17, verse 26 and 27, he's talking about the judgment of God, and he says this, Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. The world was wicked in the day of Noah. The Bible says that the people were only pursuing what they wanted against the will of God all the time. And we can look around in our society and we can see the godlessness present from so many people on so many levels. He goes on in the next two verses. Likewise, in 28 and 29, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, from the city Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. Again, the judgment of God. First, cataclysmic worldwide flood. Second, Sulfur and fire consuming two cities completely. 
He continues to talk about the terrible judgment of God that is coming on this fallen and evil world. And he gets to verse 34 and 35. He says this, I tell you, in that night when I will come, there will be two in bed, and one will be taken, and one will be left. There will be two women grinding together. One will disappear, and the other will be left. He's trying to shake people out of the slumber that we find ourselves in. That God is not at all content with the evil in this world. The ugliness, the hate, the abuse of power, the manipulation of the weak and the feeble for our own personal pleasures and gain. And I could go on, the envy, the selfishness, the deception that's everywhere. God is not okay with this. He sees it, and it breaks his heart. And I think sometimes we think, ah, God must be okay with it. And I think sometimes we become numb to it and okay with it. And we get to liking our lives pretty good. I like my job. I like my house. I like my family. I like my church. What is heaven really for me anyway? I got it pretty good right now. That's the very thing he's trying to warn the people against. So knowing that God is aware of the evil, knowing he's aware of the sin, knowing this is not acceptable, that it breaks his heart, it infuriates him, it is going to bring about his wrath, we get to verse 18. Let's look again at this passage. How does it look now in the backdrop of the judgment of God? He starts out by saying what? They ought always to pray and not lose heart. Now it makes a little more sense. The judgment of God is coming. Be aware of it. Count on it. It will be horrible. And if you and I fear getting caught up in that, what does he say? We ought always to pray and not lose heart. He continues after the parable and describes it in more detail at verse 6, 7, and 8 again. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice, make all things right, to his elect, to those whom he has chosen? That's what elect means. It means I've chosen you. You've not chosen me, but I have chosen you. Who cry to him day and night. No, the unrighteous judge is giving this woman what she wants to get rid of her. God will do so much more for us because he loves us. He cares for us. We have been chosen by him. But this raises an interesting question for us right now. If this is who God is, and he feels this way about evil and sin and the wickedness all around us, Jeremy, why is he delaying? Why hasn't he come back already? And that seems like one of those hard questions that we don't know an answer to. We actually do have an answer to that. It's in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. Why does God withhold justice in the first place? Peter tells us this, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. 
God is delaying. He's holding back his final judgment on sin and on this wicked world because he wants more of us rebellious sinners to come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Out of love for us, wanting more of us adopted into his family, he delays and he waits. And with supernatural power for a righteous and just God, he sees all the wickedness and evil and he says, I want more. It's love. If God had come back five years ago, there's a bunch of you in the room that would not be there. You've come to faith in the last five years and had God come in 2015, you'd have missed out. 20 years ago, had been even more of us. There will come a day, however. There will come a day when God will say, enough. When that last person will have professed faith and he say, okay, it's full. And my sovereign plan, we're there. We have all who have come. But that time is not yet. And so he waits and he calls to us. And he endures the evil and the wickedness much more visibly than we do. As we do. Hoping that we will reach out and share and love and invite others into the grace that God has given to us. Now when we see the phrase people crying out day and night, it makes more sense. Because this is a type of relationship God wants to have with us whom he has saved from this terrible judgment that is coming. And hopefully this passage and this story raises us above this mediocre, yeah, I'll pray more consistently. I'm thankful for what God has done in my life. And someday when he's ready, he'll call me home. Someday, when he's ready, fire is going to consume everything because that's how terrible our sin is and that's how wicked this world is. Now, I need to confess, obviously as I'm reading and studying for this passage this week, I do not cry out to God enough. I pray, I keep a journal, I have my list of people I try to pray for with some regularity. Some stretches I'm better than others, honestly. But do I cry out to God? Do I open up my heart and soul to him? Do I plead for his presence in my life, for his power to overcome sin and temptation, knowing what is going to happen because of sin? No, not at all, like I should. And he asks the question at the end of this parable, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Now, what does find faith on earth mean? Well, it's not a bunch of people who call themselves Christians who gather every week at church and maybe choose to serve on a serving team, which is good. Small groups are good. But is that really finding faith? In this passage, he describes faith as a person who's engaged with him, who's longing for him, who's crying out for, to him who has a passionate relationship with God. That's what he's describing as faith. And when he comes, will he find said faith on the earth? And so we're the desperate widow. We're the desperate widow needing to ask, needing to cry out. We're not as comfortable. We're not as full. We're not as wealthy as we perceive ourselves to be. And some of us here have experienced acute heartache and heartbreak and know that all those things can become meaningless in a moment. This world is hard. 
This world is gut-wrenching, disappointing, unfair, just like Matt said last week, confusing. And yet God is faithful. And so that's my question for each of us this morning. Are we crying out to God because of the grace and love he's shown us in light of the terrible judgment and the terrible response to sin that he must bring about? And persevering in prayer for this end is one of the clearest ways we can show God our love and our zeal for him. And so this morning, the question is for us. When he comes back, were he to come back today, were today to be that day, would he find you and me, most importantly me, full of faith? Let's pray. Father, we are humbled by this passage and we are grateful that you give us a picture, a picture of a feeble woman in dire straits who simply has no other option, so she cries out. And in her crying out, she gets what she is crying for from an unrighteous judge. And how much more, how much better will your deliverance to us be? And my, my prayer for us, Lord, is that we wouldn't think we're so capable. That today, this morning, this, this week, that we wouldn't think we are all that well off but that we would see our desperation, our desperate condition, that we would see you and we would see this wicked world around us and we, the promise that it is going to burn. Judgment will come, but you will save those who have said yes to Jesus Christ. And we are so grateful for that. Help us to see, help us to hear Help us to, to feel this deeper in our hearts than we might normally. So that we can have the motivation to love you and to cry out to you day and night. And by your grace and power, you might return and find faith on the earth.